Amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. In the last week, we looked at the Gospel of John, and today we're going to look at 1 John. And as Heather was praying, I was reminded when Jesus met with his disciples at the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, I believe, I didn't have time to look it up, uh, so I'll go off memory if I'm wrong, uh, Grace. And so he told them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then he told them, if you forgive someone's sins, they're forgiven. But if you withhold them, then they're withheld. And scholars debate about what that means because, you know, who has authority to forgive sins but God? But there's a powerful lesson there um, that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. He's not giving them permission (laughs) to not forgive people. He's speaking of the, the power of forgiveness. And you have been given the Holy Spirit to live in a supernatural way. Um, so there's, there's a profound message that God wants us to hear today uh, about love. Um, I've, we've been in a series called Trust the Story, and we're on part 35. Um, and I've just, as we've gone through this year, uh, I've been amazed, at least in my own life, the way that a book of the Bible that we just happen to be studying um, really applies to the situation of my life. And, um, you know, as we look at first, second, and third John today, and we talk about love, how interesting that the Advent devotional that I just happened to pick for us to read this year because a friend of mine told me about it and I perused it and it was good. And I just passed it on to you guys. If you wanted to read it on the day that I'm preaching about, it's all about love. Mike Bickle wrote a devotion about growing in love and Christina shared with us a word about forgiveness and love. Could it all be just some strange odd coincidence that's happening? And next week, um, I didn't know if I was going to actually get a Christmas message in, uh, but we're going to look at first Peter and uh, there's a Christmas message in first Peter that uh, I'm going to share with you next week. Um, I don't know what it's titled yet, but, uh, and then we're going to end the year in the book of second Timothy. Uh, which I just think is just a great way to um, end the year, especially the year of 2020. And then the beginning of next year, we're going to look at the book of Jude. And then we're going to pause this series. And there's two messages left, the book of Revelation and then the recap. Um, And I don't know exactly when we're going to come back to it, probably in February. But we're going to, um, in January, we're going to have our last service in this room. And then we're going to have our first service at the Fine Arts uh, Center on January the 17th. That'll be our first Sunday uh, in the Fine Arts Center. And so I just felt like we needed to, to pause, um, even though there's only two left. Um, but Revelation may end up being more than one week because it's kind of a, a very misunderstood book, um, but very important for our lives. So the whole point of this series is learning to see the Bible as a story. The story God has been telling from the beginning. Um, Before the foundation of the world, God had a story. um, And he has never had to deviate from it. When 2020 came, God did not have to change his plan at all. And we talked last week a lot about shaking. We all believe that the book of Revelation, the end times prophecy, things are going to get really weird before Jesus returns. And uh, if this year of shaking has showed me anything, um, is I don't believe the American church is nearly ready for what is about to come upon the earth. Um, God is shaking us to prepare us for what's coming on the earth because we all believe things are going to get crazy before Jesus comes, and we've had a hard time handling 2020. 
And there are crazier things to come. And we have got to be centered on Christ and who he is and the fact that God's plan hasn't changed. And what other people do doesn't affect what God has called me to do or who I am. And I need to make sure that I'm treating them, my enemies, the same way he's treated me because that is a big scriptural, scriptural concept. Uh, and we're going to see it today in the book of 1 John. So today, uh, part 35, and we've been studying or we read this week, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I titled it, It's All About Love. It's all about love. Last week, we looked at John's gospel. John's gospel and these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were all written about the same time. And as we've talked about the New Testament books and the order they're in, they're not in the order they were written. They're in the order uh, of how the early church fathers that collected them put them. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the story of Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the gospels, are very similar. We call them the synoptic gospels. John's version of the gospel is a lot different, so that's why they put it forth. I wish we put Luke and Acts together because Luke wrote Luke and Acts kind of together, um, but we separate them by the book of John. Um, Acts tells the story of the church, and then we take all of the letters that were written by all of the church leaders of the time, and we put them in order. Because Paul wrote most of them, we put all his letters first. And we start with Romans because it's the longest. And then we go to 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians because you just, you know, don't want to separate the Corinthians. Um, and even though they're, as we learned, 2 and 4 Corinthians, but those are 1 and 2 Corinthians. And then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, as they are sized down. And then we come to like the letters, Hebrews, we don't exactly know who wrote it, so we stick it in there. And then James, and then first and second Peter, because, you know, Peter wrote a couple that are bigger than John's, and so they come before John. Um, again, maybe you thought it was all like this really wise thing, um, but it really is just put in order for that reason. Not a big deal, but we want to understand when they were written, how they were written, why they were written, and not just, you know, pick and choose however we want to pick and choose them. The, the letter, 1 John, is actually anonymous. John doesn't sign it, but the style of it and the things that he brings out in 1 John are very, very identical to what he wrote in his gospel of John. So, um, we're pretty sure that he wrote it. And then second and third John, again, we don't know what order they were written in, but we do know that they were just like his gospel. I shared these with you last week. He wrote them to refute these false teachings. There was a false teaching that said because the material world, everything on earth is evil, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He just looked flesh. John in his gospel, and he, we will see it again today in 1 John, is clear. Jesus was flesh. We touched him. He was real. He was flesh. Get it through your heads, people. That's what he's saying. He's like, you've got to remember what we taught you, and what we taught you is true. He came in the flesh. There's a false teaching that Jesus was not the Son of God. Once again, John is going to emphasize over and over through his letters, Jesus was the Son of God. For this reason, the Son of God came to earth to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God. Jesus was the Son of God. And some of us are like, well, you know, we don't need this. But they did. Okay? And in some ways, we do too. Because we don't live like Jesus was the Son of God. 
more on our part, we'll talk about this next week, we don't live like the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God, and he lives in us. That should change everything. I shouldn't have to say, I don't have patience for this, because the Holy Spirit, God, lives in me, and he never runs out of patience. But we like to say, I don't have patience. I don't have compassion. I don't have love. I don't have peace. I don't have, well, okay, but you have God in you. If you put faith in Christ, he's there. Nothing should be impossible for us. But we've believed the lie. And so next week, we'll talk about the truth, about the Holy Spirit. So for us, it's not so much that we don't believe Jesus was the Son of God. Oh, we love Jesus. The Holy Spirit, eh, Is he really God? Is he a part of God? Oh, he is God and he is in us and it changes everything. I can't wait for next week. Um, Since salvation, another false teaching, is a deliverance from the physical world, it doesn't matter how you live. John is going to pound this in his his letter. If you claim to love God, you have to obey his commandments. If you walk in the light, you can't walk in the darkness too. You have to obey God. Okay, you must obey God, period. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you have to obey God, period. So if God says, love your enemies, it's not optional. It's not when you feel like it. It's not however you want. If God says, do not commit sexual immorality, he means it. We have to live according to his commands. John even tells us God's commands aren't burdensome. Why aren't they burdensome? Because he's already perfected us in Christ. We'll talk about that. And since sin is a part of the material world, the false prophets were saying we are sinless. John's pretty clear. If you claim to not have sin, you lie. That's what he says. If you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. Whew, harsh, John. John's words, not mine. So these false teachers are stirring up controversy in the church. They're making people all upset. And John writes his first letter, what we call his first letter, to correct all these teachers. And it's circulated among all of the churches in the area of Ephesus where John was stationed. And it's more like a poetic sermon than it is a letter. And we're going to get the first John. Um, He goes over and over and says, what I'm telling you is not new information. What I'm giving you is not a new command. And so he's saying, basically, these key ideas, these key phrases, this is what we've told you from the beginning. This isn't new. In fact, if you take the the words of Jesus in John 13 through 17, those are the final words of Jesus we talked about last week. A lot of those words appear in 1 John. It's like he's just rehashing everything Jesus taught in those final moments. And he's presenting it to them in these letters. 2 John is a little different. Second John is a specific warning to one of the house churches. One specific church he writes to about these deceivers teaching these false teachings, trying to come and look for validation. They're trying to look for support. And John says, if they teach any of these things, do not welcome them as a teacher. Do not welcome them from me. Because if they're teaching any of this, they are not from me. They're teaching another Jesus, and they are false. He doesn't say be mean to them. He doesn't say write them off and just, you know, hope that they spend eternity in hell for what they're doing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't put them in the church as a leader. They are not leaders. They're teaching what is false. The third letter is a warning to a specific church member. 
The man by the name of Gaius, John writes to him, and he is warning him or asking him to welcome the legitimate missionaries that are about to come. There are people that John wants to send to these churches, but there's a guy by the name of Diotrephes in this church. He's a leader in this church, and he is refusing to welcome anyone sent by the apostle John. Isn't that weird? I mean, with all of the problems in our churches today, in our church world, and we're always like, oh, the churches, you know, the church people are so bad, or church leaders are so bad, all the way back at the beginning of the church, here's a guy who's a leader in the church refusing to welcome people that are sent from the disciple Jesus loved, an eyewitness. So it's almost inevitable that we're going to have the same problems and so we shouldn't get so bent out of shape when people act up in churches today or when people do things we just we act like oh this is the end of the world no it's actually just the church because whenever you have a group of people that try to live together in the name of Jesus you're going to have messy in fact one of my favorite sermons in this church was by a guy by the name of Henry Vanderbush does anyone know the name Henry Vanderbush he is what they call, <laughs> only Pastor Mark, he is what they call um, a cow barn preacher. Is that what they would call him? And uh, so he's kind of rough around the edges, and he was in, in another denomination until he got filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, and then they said, we don't want you. So then he went to somewhere else. Um, and I don't know what denomination he was a part of, but he preached in this church when I was a youth pastor over 20 years ago. And I sat right there in that seat, and that man said, you know what the problem with this church is? He says, the problem is, he said, you're, you're sheep. And you know what all sheep do? He said, all sheep poop. They make manure. That's what he said. I told you he was rough around the edges. And so I'm chuckling. I'm a youth pastor. I'm like, oh, he said poop. And so, I mean, you know, a 20-year-old youth pastor, junior high, it's all the same. And so there I am just chuckling. And I remember him getting down on all fours. He said, the problem isn't that there's manure around because where there's sheep, there's manure. And he got on his hands and knees and he put his face in the carpet. And he said, your problem is you spend all of your time smelling the manure. You could have heard a pin drop in this place. And I'm like, can he say that? Like, I guess when you're an evangelist, you can say whatever you want because you're here today, gone tomorrow. Pastors can't preach those kind of sermons because you got to face the people every week. But there's a lot of truth to that for today. Um, it's not, the problem isn't that there's manure. The problem is we spend way too much time smelling it. Ouch. So um, the four main sections of John's letter, um, he gives an introduction, he gives a closing, and then he gives these two main points, if you will. In these two sections, he says, this is the message. And then he speaks about God being light. And then he says, this is the message and God is love. But John doesn't do a sermon like the way we do a sermon. We like a sermon with point one and then you develop point one and then you give an illustration about point one and then you move on to point two and then you develop point two and then you give. But John doesn't do that. He uses what's called amplification. And amplification, John basically takes three main things. And uh, for some reason, I have lost them in my notes and I cannot find them. But he takes these three main concepts. There they are. Life, truth, and love. Life, truth, and love. And what he does is he keeps talking over them. And he keeps bringing them up. So God is light. 
truth, life, love. God is love, truth, life, love. And he just keeps coming back around and he'll talk about one and, and it's so scattered. I mean, if you're a linear type A person, First John for you is just like, dude, what are, what are you doing? Talk, I mean, love here, love there, light here, light there, life, life, all over the place. And it's like, what is, what is all this cycle stuff? Um, but that's what John is doing. And so even though he says God is light and God is love, just like his gospel, he just keeps rehashing these three main points. So let's look at a couple things. From 1 John chapter 5, just like his gospel, look at what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Remember, he wrote his gospel so that we would believe in Jesus as the son and so that we would know that you have eternal life. Can I tell you something? Eternal life is right now. John is writing so that you understand what is in you. Eternal life is in you. Jesus did not die so that one day you can just wake up in heaven. That's a part of it, but he died to bring you into relationship with the Father. The entire Old Testament is about God getting his spirit in us. That's what he's wanted all along. He's wanted to dwell with us, and he's not waiting for you to get to heaven. He put his spirit in you, and he wants everything in your life to change as a result of it. It's powerful. And in 1 John chapter 3, and by the way, all of that comes just by believing in what Jesus did. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove your worth. You just have to believe in Jesus. And the Spirit takes up residence in you. Oh, it's just wonderful. 1 John chapter 3. This is his command, Jesus' command, to believe, or God's command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, just like his gospel, and to love one another as he commanded us. Love for one another flows out of belief in God. What John is about to teach us is, if you claim to believe in God, the litmus test for whether or not we genuinely believe in God is how well we're loving others. And we like to make the litmus test a lot of other stuff. Sunday school attendance, church attendance, prayer meeting attendance, how many times I've read through the Bible. I mean, and all of those things are important and all of those things are good. And we like to think, as long as I have all these spiritual high marks, but if I treat people like dirt, but hey, they treated me like dirt first. John's like, if you claim to believe in God and you're, there's not love present in your relationships, you don't know God. Because God is love. So he starts his book very similar to John, John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, which our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. See, Jesus, Son of God, came in flesh. The life appeared. We have seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you so that what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. 
So yes, he's combating these false teachings right off the bat. And he's saying, when you put belief in Jesus, you come into fellowship with God. There's unity, there's oneness, there's connection. And it better be lived out in how we live our lives. When we come to the end of the book, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, the one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also the son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Bizarre ending. I mean, everything until this last thing about keeping ourselves from idols seems so bizarre unless we understand what John is doing. What John is talking about here at the conclusion of his letter is what he's talked about all along, that we are partners in distributing the kingdom of God. By our love, people will know us. God has put his love in us so that we in turn can love others. And as we love others, his love is perfected in us. In other words, if you want to receive from God, the way to receive is give. The way to receive is not come to an altar, put your hands out and receive. <laughs> You've already been given everything you need for life and godliness by your belief in God, by his spirit in you. And the problem is we want to just keep getting for ourselves and we're not releasing what he said to release. And as a, the problem is we get frustrated and angry and critical and we don't understand why. God, I need your peace. He's like, I've given you my peace. Just start releasing my peace over other people and you'll walk in peace. That's some good stuff right there. And then he comes along and says, we don't continue to sin. It doesn't mean that you are never going to sin again. I know that people are going to hate this, but by the way, I guarantee this week, every one of us is going to sin. Oh, pastor, don't say that. Let's just resolve. We're not going to sin. Guys, if it was possible for us to be sinless, we wouldn't have needed that. We wouldn't need the spirit in us. We are going to make mistakes and your sin is going to look different than my sin and it's going to look different than the sin of the person beside you. And the problem is we start looking at everyone else's sin and we get critical of their sin and we act like we don't have sin. John is pretty clear. We have sin, but we also have an advocate. And the moment we sin, his blood covers us. But don't ignore your sin. Don't rationalize your sin. Don't excuse your sin. Don't say, oh, God understands I have needs. Yeah, he understands you have needs and he's put his spirit in you to have self-control. Don't excuse it. Don't rationalize it. Don't ignore it. Confess it. Get up from your mistake and keep moving forward. Don't live in shame and guilt and condemnation, but don't live in this rationalization of hardening our hearts. The moment the Holy Spirit comes and says, hey, that's sin, I want you to get away from it, and you excuse it or you rash, well, I only did that because someone else acted that way or I only did that because, you know, I, really, I was just really in a weak moment. You start rationalizing and a veil of deception covers our hearts. And eventually we will come to the place where something black and white in the scripture that is called sin will have, our conscience will be so seared that we will just say, well, that's not really sin. 
All because we rationalized it the first time. If we hear the word and we do not do what it says, we deceive ourselves. And this is what John keeps coming back to. We have to be obedient to the word. 1 John chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Again, doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but you have to admit when you've not kept his command. You have to ask for, for forgiveness. You have to confess it. You have to make it right with him. And then you pick yourself up and you, go, you move on. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to feel guilty for a week. You don't have to walk around with your head down defeated. You admit it and you get up and you move on. That's how we live. This idea that we have to live in shame and guilt and condemnation, that, that tramples on the blood of Jesus just as much as committing deliberate sin. You don't pay for it. You confess it and you move on. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. And I don't care if that's sexual immorality, or I don't care if that's that I attend church, but there are people at the church I don't talk to because I'm mad at them. I don't care which one of those sins it is, period. If we claim to follow him, if we're not loving our enemies, we're not following him. If we're not blessing those who curse us, we're not following him. Those are his commands. All of them are his commands. And if we're going to live in Jesus, we have to walk like Jesus did. This is how we're no, we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Friends, I'm not writing you a new command. It's an old one, which you've had since the beginning. The old command is the message you've heard. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Our relationships with other people are the litmus test for the love of God in our lives. We, when we go to church, we like to make the love of God about other stuff. Well, I tithe, so I love God. I go to church every week, so I love God. I read the Bible, so I love God. I sacrifice my, my life for every, I, I love God. Oh, but these people over here that I, I'm not loving, well, let's read 1 John chapter 3. See what great love the Father has, you know, trickled down on us. He lavished his love on us. He gave his best for us while we were his enemies. There was not one of us in this room or one of us watching online that was anywhere close to being ready to be able to receive his love in a satisfactory manner. None of us. And yet in that moment, he lavished love on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Anything other than laying down our lives isn't love. It isn't love. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Now, that doesn't mean you're going to do it this perfect. Again, we're going to walk past people that were in need. There's going to be times that someone's in need and I act selfish and do my own thing and I just totally neglect that person's need. It's going to happen because we wrestle with this flesh. 
But the question is, am I going to own up to it? Am I going to recognize it? Am I going to apologize? Am I going to do what I need to do to walk in, re- in this revelation of truth and not just love with words, but in speech, in actions, and in truth? All three, speech, actions, truth. This week, I was reading in a version Bible plan, and I wish I could give credit, but I don't know who wrote it because it's one of those that some church wrote, and they didn't tell me who wrote it. So here's what it says. It's easy to say the words, I love you. Putting those words into action is much more difficult because it requires more of us. It is a calling to lay down our lives for one another. More than likely, we will not have to take a bullet or jump in front of a speeding train to save someone. We will need to do things like lay aside our selfishness, put the interests and needs of others before our own. We are called to show this love to our own families, communities, and even the church around the world. The calling, this calling, has a high price. It requires that we forgive, speak truth, carry each other's burdens, pray for one another, and lay down our own interests. It means we need to live out all those other one another passages. This is a great calling. We can't do it on our own. We need the power of God in us to love others with more than only words. Lord, the the call to love others more than myself is a hard one. I am selfish and prideful by nature. I need your help to show true love to those you have placed in my lives, in my life. Help me to love my family through my actions. Help me to love my friends through my tone of voice and attitude. Help me to love my coworkers by gladly doing things for them that seem hard or uninteresting. Thank you that through your power, I can be a witness for the way I, by the way I treat others. Amen. That's some profound stuff. I don't know who wrote it, but I wish I could give credit to them because that's, the, that's love right there. And that's what needs to be displayed in our lives. This is what Jesus said. If you as a church will live like this, people will see you and they will know I came from the Father. Because let's face it, Jesus himself even said, if I treat people that treat me well, if I treat them good, everybody does that. If I love people that are lovely, if I love people that are are good to me, It doesn't take anything supernatural. But if I live this way toward my enemies, if I live this way to the people that annoy me, if I live this way to the people that disagree with me or curse me, it proves there's something supernatural on the inside of me. That's the power of God. I mean, yeah, let's worry about healing the sick and raising the dead, but for goodness sake, let's make sure that we put this in there. Because we can raise the dead and heal the sick, and we're going to read it in just a second. But if we don't have love, nothing. Nothing. It's all about love. It's about even laying down the expectations we have for one another. Because sometimes we're like, well, this is the way I want you to love me. You have to, I expect that you do this for me. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. Sometimes people fall short, and we give them mercy. Yes, we have to have hard conversations with people. Yes, we have to sit down and say, hey, when you did this, it really hurt my my feelings and this is how I took it. And we have to learn to reconcile that relationship. Can I tell you the, the truth today, church? The American church has bought this lie that we don't bring up things because, well, I didn't want to cause problems. 
You don't bring it up to your spouse because I don't want to cause problems. We didn't bring it up to our family members because we don't want to cause problems. We don't bring it up to our church family because we don't want to cause problems. And do you know what the reason that's a lie? Because by not bringing it up, we are actually creating way more problems than if we had actually sat down with the person that we had a problem with and we reconciled that relationship. As it is, we carry it like a weight and everything that person does is now seen through what they did the last time. Not through the lens of reconciliation, through the lens of their sin, through the lens of their mistakes, because we haven't healed it. We haven't done it. I'm not saying bring up every little thing that anyone ever does. For goodness sake, we wouldn't have time to do anything else. Amen? But the things that are big, the things that matter, the things that cause us to withdraw or isolate from one another, the things that we tell other people so that other people's views of that person also get skewed, man, if we don't start dealing with those things, and is there any wonder the world is in the shape it's in today? It's not because sin is increasing. It's because the love of many has grown cold. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Wickedness will increase because the love of many will grow cold and bitter roots will spring up and defile many. We slowly drift away. It takes supernatural strength, endurance, patience, and love, and thank goodness God thought ahead. He put his spirit in us so we could do this. This is possible. And I don't care what any other church is like. Restoration Church, we're fighting for this. This is the kind of church we are going to be. I don't know how long it's going to take us. It could take us till Jesus comes. But we're going to keep fighting for it. Because, last one from 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. By the way, when he says love, he's not talking about your emotions. Okay, so if you're like, oh, that person annoys me, I must not know God. Okay, he's not talking about your feelings or your emotions because those can be set off by food, they can be set off by anxiety, they can be set off by depression, they can be set off just by people's annoying habits. So he's not talking about emotions, he's talking about our actions. So you may feel angry towards someone, but in your anger, the Bible says, do not sin. Love is an action, it's how I treat you, not how I feel about you. But if we act in love towards others, it will begin to change our feelings towards others. So we act our way into the right feelings. We don't feel our way into acting. Some of us fall in love more with the Hallmark version of love than the biblical version of love. Okay? Hallmark is fantasy. Biblical is act first, feel second. Okay? That's how we live out our lives. Okay, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send, you know, a fallen angel, the one that kept screwing up. I'll, do, I'll sacrifice that one. He sent his son. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our, our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. See, I don't understand how all of this works. But I know that there's two different paths we can take when it comes to our own mistakes, our own sin. 
As I said, not one of us today is in a place where we're not sinning. There is an area of our lives where we are living in some level of disobedience, pride, selfishness, something that the Holy Spirit could correct in our lives today. Guaranteed, everyone in the room, everyone online, something. So it's not a question of, am I living somewhere wrong? It's where am I? And now I don't have to get all introspective and try to find my flaws and faults. In fact, when I do, it becomes severely depressing. I actually just have to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, show me where I need to fit this in my life. Show me where I'm fallible. And sometimes I need brothers and sisters in Christ because I don't see my own fallibility. Because I see yours. <laughs> I mean, because yours is easier to see than mine. Ah, see, see how that works? And that's why we become critical of others because we see theirs and we become ignorant of our own as if we don't have any. So if we just focus on our own weaknesses and, and flaws and shortcomings, we live in shame and guilt. We can't go there. But if we don't admit that we've got something going on, we become proud and critical. Listen to me. A litmus test for your life today, if many of your words about other people and about the situations in your life are complaints and criti criticisms and criticalness, that's a sign that there is a major flaw in your heart that God needs to work on. Love is absent. Okay? It doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean you're in danger of the fires of hell. It means it's time to say, God, you need to put, I, need your, I need to let your love in my heart for that person because all I'm seeing is their flaws, and I know that's not what you're seeing. I need to know how to lavish love on them the same way that you did. And I could have pulled out all of these verses from 1 John that talked about love, but I wanted to, to take... And I wanted to put up some ones from other places because I want you to know that this isn't just John. This is the Bible. The Pharisees were marked by, you know, keeping all of the commandments, but they lacked mercy, compassion, love. And Jesus confronted that. The first one that I want, I already alluded to this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but there's no corresponding love. I'm a resounding gong and I'm a clanging cymbal. Listen to this. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but there's not corresponding love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship so that I may boast, but I do not have corresponding love, I gain nothing. It's all about love. One of the Pharisees come to Jesus, an expert in the law, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? You gotta understand, Jesus himself and Matthew answered the same question that he's asking this guy to answer and he answered it the same way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a teacher in the law answering Jesus' question on how do you get eternal life. Love God, love your neighbor. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will leave. live. Look at what he wants to do. 
He wants to justify his behavior. Well, there's some people I don't want to love, so how do I justify myself? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus takes the dirty, rotten Samaritan and makes him the hero of the story just to show him the hero, the person that you're supposed to love is the very person you don't want to. And so for everybody, it's different. It's not the, the number of people you're loving, it's where you're withholding it. Because every person on earth loves somebody, loves a lot of people. It's where we withhold it that shows the supernatural love of God in our lives. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Powerful. The, the, the apostles take this statement by Jesus and this expert of the law, love God, love others, and that's the fulfillment of the law. And look what Paul says in Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, to be selfish. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command. Interesting, not two commands now, one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And ironically, good Christians today put the, the love God first. But what, what's, what you have to understand is you can't love others with this biblical supernatural love if you're not loving God. So it's not like they're saying, no, this is more important than loving God. They're saying, this is the true test. Because you can say, oh, I love God, and you can deceive yourself because you can't see God. Because you can create a God in your own image, much like an idol that John says stay away from. You can harden your heart and not obey his commandments and not be struck down instantly because God is merciful and he's compassionate towards us. And even when we sin, he doesn't smite us or strike us with a plague. And he sometimes allows us to walk a path. And you can create a God in that image. But what's hard is relationships here on this earth because they're so visible. And that's why John says, that's important. That's why Galatians, Paul says, that's why James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Paul says it also in Romans chapter 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, I'm not saying the commandments of God are not important. I'm not saying sexual immorality is not important and lying is not important and all of these other sins. But when we are at a place where this biblical love is flowing out of us in a way that our relationships horizontally are right, I guarantee you the other thing will be in place. The love of God, because in order for that flow to happen, the other stuff gets taken care of too. So, it's all about love in the sense that that's our litmus test. That's what shows us whether we're walking in fellowship with God and with each other. And so today, as we end this, I want you to think about what's the fruit of my life. Does my life, is the fruit of my life more critical or more compassionate? More critical or more compassionate? Is it more frustrated or more patient? 
And here's the thing. I don't want you to go home today and be like, shame and guilt. I'm critical. I would guess that the majority of those that are listening to me today are better than me. You're not nearly as critical as I am. You're not nearly as impatient and frustrated as I am. All of the time, words come out of my mouth and I think, where is that coming from? And I know my heart, okay, I wrestle with it all the time. But I refuse to live in shame and guilt and be defined by it. And every time it comes out of my mouth, so does the word, Holy Spirit, that can't keep coming out of me. You've got to change my heart. And so I'm hoping that today I'm better than I was 22 years ago when I joked and laughed about poop. I hope. Do I still have a ways to go? Yeah. And I bet you do too. And so it's not about shame and guilt. It's not about let's line up, you know, from the best to the, the worst. And we're just now all failing in different areas. We all fall short somewhere. It's just different areas. And so instead of throwing stones at each other, what if we just came alongside each other and said, hey, I'll hold you accountable for that. You hold me accountable for this. Because we both have flaws. So let's, walk, let's work this out. Let's make each other stronger. Let's make each other more ready for what's coming on the earth. Let's make each other more ready to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what this is all about. That's what Restoration Church is all about. And it requires every one of us being engaged and every one of us choosing to walk in this path that's quite honestly a difficult path to walk. As Christina brought out today, sometimes it's like the trip from Galilee to Jerusalem, which, by the way, would be like the walk from here to Mitchell. That's how long you got to go. Okay, so you got something against your brother, be willing to walk to Mitchell to work it out and then walk back so you can offer your sacrifice and be right with God. It's interesting. The sacrifice needs to be offered to be made right with God, but Jesus says, leave it there because you're not going to be right with God because you've got to go over there and get that right and then come back and offer your gift. That's hard. That means it might take us a while. But hey, we got nothing but time, right? All right, two last verses and then I'm going to pray for you. Here, these should be our key verses for the week, maybe for the rest of our lives as Restoration Church. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. I want to see our church grow in the gifts of the Spirit, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, gifts of healing. I want to see the dead raised. I want to see miracles. However, I don't want to see that happen and not be a church full of love because otherwise we get nothing. The kingdom doesn't get the reputation it needs. Then we just become a lot of selfish people trying to get things from God, name it, claim it style. Don't want that. I want true and I want love. I want when people say, Restoration Church, man, those people, they know how to love. Not they know how to worship, not they know how to preach, not they know how to do anything else. They know how to love. Ephesians chapter 5, follow God's example I love the NLT says, imitate God in everything you do. Imitate him. As dearly loved children, walk in the way of love. 
Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, I was fine without that comma part there. I mean, walk in the way of love, eh, I can do that. But to do it the same way Christ did as he gave himself up for me, that's a harder challenge. But guess what? You have the spirit in you for just this purpose. So let's do what we did at the beginning of the service and say, God, we trust your leadership in this. And so Holy Spirit, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you that you have come into us to make what we've just talked about possible. You are love. You are peace. You are hope. You are joy. You are the embodiment of everything we need. We don't need anything else to come from heaven. You are it. You are heaven on the inside of us. Help us to understand what you're trying to do in our lives. Show us the areas that you're trying to peel away. Help us to walk in fellowship with one another so that we can see through their eyes the things that we can't see in our lives through our own eyes. God, help us to be gentle with one another. God, we don't want to correct each other in a harsh, rebuking way. We want to be gentle. We want to recognize that for every speck I see in my brother's eye, I have got a whole log of things in my own that need to be dealt with. But God, I want them to be able to come to me and help me, and I want to be able to help them. Because as we learn to walk like this, you promised that this entire community would see and know that Jesus is the Son of God and why he came to this earth. And we as a church want this. But God, we recognize this is so hard. Help us. Help us to be more compassionate than we are critical. Help us to be filled with your love. God, I break off today shame, guilt, and condemnation on any heart that today is going to wrestle with how they've treated others. But God, I also pray that you would remove the blinders of pride and ignorance from our hearts, that we would not deflect this moment, but God, that we would own up to every flaw in our character that you want to work out today. And so God, I pray that we would come to know your love, your love for us, so that we're able to keep your commands. God, so that we're able to, to live in that unbroken fellowship with you. And so we're able to let that same love that you've put in us flow out of us to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to do good to those who hate us and mistreat us. Holy Spirit, finish that work in the heart of every member of Restoration Church, I pray. Help us to have mercy, grace, and love for one another, I pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for the work that you're doing. I know you're going to be faithful to complete it. I pray your blessing over every person that's here today, over every person that's watching online. 
God, bless them and keep them. Cause your face to shine on them. Lift up your countenance upon them. Give them peace and be gracious to them in every way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.